So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. Today's guest is Lydia Brown. Lydia, welcome to today's show. Hi, thank you for having me. You're a former student of a school that, that we were both at. I was working at the school, you were you were a student at the school and it's been a few years, but we're going to catch up today and we're going to talk about your academic career and also going to have a, a, a brief overview of your current studies. But a lot of today's programme is going to be taking up with talking about mental health issues. Good. So just, just a brief overview then of your academic career and, and your current studies. So um, I'm currently an applied health psychologist in training. Um, my academic career has always been quite psychology orientated, so I came to Glasgow in 2018 for my undergraduate degree in psychology, and I graduated last summer uh, in psychology specialising in neuroscience. Uh, while I was a student, uh, an undergraduate student, I had the opportunity to train as a peer wellbeing supporter and ha- learn how to use active listening skills and effective signposting to help other students with a range of issues regarding anything from exam stress to relationship troubles to loneliness, finance problems. But I found it to be a really rewarding experience. Um, and then in my university modules, uh, I realized I particularly really enjoyed neuroscience and particularly pharmacology and thinking about how drugs and hormones and medical care as well can affect how people manage their mental health and their well-being, how they might be less responsive to antidepressants, for example, or more willing to drink alcohol or smoke, for example, and how those health behaviours can then affect the stress in the body, how they cope with daily situations. Um, I just found that really interesting. But then sort of coming out to the end of my degree, I realised I really enjoyed conducting research. I had conducted some research around uh, young people's mental health and also some neuroscience research as well. That was a little bit different. But I realised that if I went into a master's or a straight PhD, I maybe wouldn't have as much opportunity to work directly with people, helping people, which I found to be so fulfilling. And I had also done it in volunteer roles before I came to university as well. So I couldn't imagine not having the time to do that, opted to do a practitioner health psychology doctorate course instead. So I'm currently doing my D-Psych professional doctorate in health psychology, which is focusing on how biological, social and psychological factors influence health and illness and how we can best support positive behavioural and psychological change around health disability and health conditions. It is practitioner training, so I'm in part working directly with clients to support their well-being and the management of their health conditions. But I'm also conducting research around decision-making processes, around medical treatment and medical care. So I'm really hoping in the future to work as a scientist practitioner and hopefully support the formation of healthcare policy to best support individuals affected by health conditions and illness. So it's a really great field to be in and I'm really enjoying it. I feel like I've made the right choice, but it's a, it's early days still. I'm only a, a semester into my doctorate. So uh, it's a lot of work to do, but uh, I'm very much enjoying it. <laughs> it was good to hear. You, you have in the past done some research on the mental health of students. What has that indicated? Yeah, so I did two studies early on in my career. Um, one I did during the pandemic, and that was a qualitative study looking at university students um, social interactions and how they were impacted due to pandemic and so what we found with that was because university education became online and completely online there was a lot of zoom fatigue as we call it and people 
having a hard time disengaging from work once they're at the laptop. They had to feel that they had to completely come away from it and that they couldn't really use it as a vehicle for maintaining social relationships. They didn't really want to speak to their friends through chats and, and online techniques. They might schedule, and this was, this was in sort of early 2021, so a little bit previous, but they would sort of schedule maybe events to have like a Zoom call or a friendship gathering online or something, and then it would fall through. And there was a lot of guilt around not maintaining these friendships. Um, but at the same time, didn't most students didn't feel that they had the energy to fulfill those relationships and to maintain them, even though it made them feel guilty and that they deeply regretted not maintaining those friendships. And so it was kind of a, a cycle that was being caused by being stuck inside, not being able to go outside and interact socially as they would have normally and go to the cinema, go have a coffee or whatever. And so we could really see the impact of the pandemic and sort of isolation and loneliness. And I definitely saw that as well when I was working as peer support. So there was a lot of discussion around loneliness and feeling like I'm stuck inside and I'm having a really hard time with how I manage being by myself when all I have is the screen in front of me to communicate with people and it doesn't feel like real social connection. That was really interesting. I think some of that still stands now, even though that was sort of early last year. Obviously, we come out of social distancing so much and things, but there's still there's still a lot of anxiety there I think and there's still you know never mind people who are maybe immunocompromised and they're having a hard time still managing how do I see my friends how do I see my family do the things I want to do when there's concerns that can impact my health that's a, a distressing event to, to have to manage it, it's been a real big toll on young people I think specifically and students prior to that I, I did a study it was quantitative research and that wasn't significant <laughs> didn't find any significant findings but I think it's still interesting to talk about because that was looking at um, the relationship between social offline nighttime distress and how difficult it is for students to disengage from social media at night and the relationship that that has with sleep, sleep quality and depressive and anxious symptoms. So we hypothesized that uh, sleep quality would be a mediator for the relationship between offline nighttime distress and depressive and anxious symptoms we didn't find that in the end but we do know that there is a relationship between having these kind of symptoms and finding it harder to disengage at night time finding it harder to turn off the phone to come away from instagram to come away from facebook to say okay this is this is my time now i'm going to go to bed i'm going to shut down and also when you wake up you're coming straight onto social media again and feeling that connection very much and that's how you're maintaining social relationships and that's how you're experiencing the world around you and I think that has a real impact when you think about especially young people using social media so often how it can not only have an impact on sleep quality but also the emotions that are feeling out throughout the day and, and from the get-go and from the very last thing at night impacting how they cope with things. And what do you think are the biggest pressures on young people today? I think definitely there's this pressure to succeed um, I think that is constant for young people. Um, even pre-university, it's very much in, like, we constantly hear about the cost of living crisis and things like this. And it's very much feels like we must do well now to, to set ourselves up, up for the rest of our lives. And there's a lot of dependency for us to be able to be independent people uh, at a very young age. You know, as soon as you become 18, it feels like you should have it all figured out and you should know what I'm doing. And 
I should know what career I'm going down. And if, you know, your undergraduate degree didn't go well, it's, oh gosh, what do I do next? And that's quite a, a stressor, you know what I mean? Never mind exams and the academic pressures in themselves within universities really need to come quite a way, I think, to fully recognise the impact they have on students. I think particularly since the pandemic as well, with um, assessments moving very much online and things, the approach changed as to how people take assessments and how they digest knowledge and how they present it and how useful that feels for the student and the young person. And then additionally, I would say body image as well. And that comes more into social media and things as well, when we're constantly exposed to an idealistic version of ourselves and, and filters even when we use them on our on our pictures and things. It's so hard to not realise, you know, I'm okay with, with how I look like and it, this is all right to be looking like this rather than looking like the idealised version of myself. And it can be really difficult, especially for a young person, to recognise why that's important to them and that it's an outward perception of how they should be rather than an inward need to look that particular way or wanting to look that particular way. And it's for validation or acceptance rather than actually what they desire within themselves. And that could be a really tricky thing to recognise, I think, for young people. So so my next question is, what, what help should we really be giving um, these young people who are struggling with with their, their mental health? What kind of support do you think that they, they need? So I think societally we've come away in recognising depression, anxiety, mental health disorders, but we still have quite a way to come in recognising symptoms and what low mood can look like. So things like not taking care of yourself, not, not promoting self-care. You know, young adults might not, say, brush their teeth for a number of days. They may not wash. They may not go and, and fulfill the activities they said they were going to do or hand in their homework on time. And these are all things that I think too often we attribute to laziness or being disorganised or not motivated enough rather than asking if they're okay and what support they need and, and how is that affecting them? Is this a conscious choice that they're making that they don't want to maintain these self-care activities? They don't want to fulfill the activities that they, they said they wanted to previously or is it something else? Is it, does it need supportive care in that sense? So I think one thing we can all do is, is really look around us and look at the people around us and sort of be there for them without being critical. There's normally something behind it. Most people want to do well. Most people want to do well for themselves. And when they don't, it's not because they don't want to do well for themselves, because something's stopping them, right? I think if we can come to recognise that, we'd do a lot better as far as supporting young people. And I just wondered where you you know you you you've helped and supported students when you were at university and before you went to university as well, and you refer to it as being a a listening volunteer. How do you manage to stay positive? Because it must be I know it must be rewarding, but it also it must have an impact on you as well. Definitely, I think. I have been in quite a few volunteer roles, so I've got better with dealing in the emotional sort of repercussions for myself. And I think the reason I've become better at dealing with it is because I really learned to value reflective practice and sort of taking the time after supporting someone therapeutically through activism and whatever, um, to really think about how that made me feel, how I handled it, how I might have handled it differently, how I felt in the moment, but really allocating that time not only in my personal space but also professionally to speak about it and, and not feel that I should just be cold to it I think it's 
natural to think, oh, well, I'm meant to be a professional in this situation, or I'm, I'm trained in a sense, and I should just shut off my feelings and my empathy in a sense and just support them in a moment and then next, next case, whatever. But that is hard. You know, we are people, we are humans, and it's a, it's a human interaction. I think when you have that genuine care, it also goes a lot more smoothly and feels a lot more supportive to the individual. So I found taking time to myself and saying, okay, the, the half an hour after the session, I'm going to take a second. I'm going to think about how that made me feel. And then doing some self-care activities. I love taking my dog for a walk and things like that. And when I next have the opportunity to speak about it with a supervisor and things, if there was something running on my mind, I know that I can talk about it then in a supportive environment and say, I found it difficult to, to support this. Or I felt a little bit overwhelmed when we were speaking about these kind of things. And it can really help just by being honest with yourself about how things made you feel and not feeling like you need to keep up a front and how old were you when you first started as an active listener and 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 for people who don't know that terminology active listener would be somebody who works with the samaritans is for the samaritans is that is that correct yeah so i the samaritans have a specific active, active listener service and i volunteered with them in birmingham um, before I moved to university. Before that, I was working with Seven Cups of Tea, which is a online service which uses a chat interface and it's just sort of peer support in that sense. So it's not um it's, uh, therapy per se. And neither of the Samaritans. The Samaritans is a crisis intervention service for individuals who are suffering from particularly low mood. So I, I worked with the Samaritans when I was 17 odd and uh, before that, 16, 15 with Seven Cups of Tea. Um, and obviously that was just talking to people in that sense and it felt very natural to me you know when you're sort of supported in the sense of what not to say and that you're not there to give advice you're there to listen and I mean that's what active listening means in a sense to really listen to what the person's saying empathetically Mm. and be there to paraphrase to recognize to validate their emotions and to really let them know it's okay to feel this way and you're being heard completely non-critically right now I'm not judging you I'm not I don't have any presumptions about you I'm just here to listen now in my doctorate obviously loads of those skills become so relevant but now I do actually have you know the input to sort of shape behavioral change and shape change around behavior and and how people deal with with issues and, and problems so it's it's been really useful coming across now but it has been quite a long journey through just listening before I can actually provide any kind of uh, intervention or any guidance in that sense. But um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of different natures of work, as I say. Obviously, with the Samaritans, it was mostly crisis intervention. With Seven Cups, it was mainly sort of relationship troubles and, and anxiety, social anxiety, and sort of speaking about general well-being and, and uh, mindfulness techniques and things like that, supporting that kind of intervention. And then with peer support, it was much more university-based issues often and stress and uh, the, the need to succeed and things like that. So it's been a really nice variation to now come to this point of helping people with their health and health behaviours. Now, coming back to you, um, has there been a person or people in your life who've had an enormous impact on you? I think definitely my grandmother my grandmother um was an aerospace engineer and uh she's just a, a very strong woman in science and i think she always really supported me 
uh, taking science seriously and thinking it was something to be interested in. <laughs> and I think that's, I, I can't benefit that enough. I always found it just wonderful reading like educational books when I was a child and hearing about her experiences and stuff. And she wasn't a psychologist per se, but it just really, really sort of uh, promoted me to sort of be just as strong of a woman in science as she was. And then my mum as well, my mum did a good degree in criminology. So when I was growing up, I always heard about all these fun things. And uh, now she works in uh, the pharmaceutical industry and she's always striving me to be my absolute best. And I'm very grateful to have a very supportive family. So I think I've been very lucky and thankful to have a circle of people around me that always sort of believed in psychology and always believed that it was a good route for me to, to help the people and that I would be good in doing that. Um, so that's, that's been immensely rewarding, I think. Yeah, I bet they're, they're really proud of you. Now, going back to school, what do you remember most about your own education? I absolutely loved critical thinking classes. Um, and that extended to philosophy with Dr. Jackson Royal and track with Dr. Popat Sabrees. And I have to say the both of them, I think, I would be nowhere near as wise <laughs> as I am today if I hadn't had the wonderful lessons. I, I always had a bit of a trouble with just straight fact and just classes where it was just calculations and nothing else maybe um, wasn't really my forte. And I always liked the opportunity to have a critical approach to things. And I found that in particularly philosophy A-level, absolutely loved it. And tracker at GCSE level just really gave me the opportunity to sort of have the space to speak and develop my opinions and I really really valued that and when I think back to school I think those are the moments that I, I, I just love the most in sort of small classes speaking about a particular topic just nothing's wrong nothing's particularly right it's just thoughts you know what I mean I love philosophy continuing out of that and I, I think I thank both of them for that as well and I think we should say that Trek was I think think thinking reasoning and and an emotional knowledge. Yeah, it was a it was a non GCSE course, so it was um it was like a qualification. I think it was just uh, additional to sort of GCSEs, but it was it was so much fun, and it was just such a it was on a Friday, I think it was or something, and you just ended the day and just you know he would bring in all these concepts of, of Plato and um, philosophical constructs and things to sort of look at today's problems, and I just loved that approach I found it so interesting it felt like it felt like a university lecture back then sort of thing it was really nice in that sense I think a similar with sort of religious studies and things and where opinions are sort of valid you can have you know informed opinions about things and sort of debate them and that's part of engaging with the content whereas I found it maybe a little bit more difficult in sort of physics and stuff to sort of take that approach do you know what I mean um so I, I didn't sort of gel as well with those subjects. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I absolutely loved doing that at school. And and then I took philosophy for the first few years of my uh, undergraduate degree as well. And I, I deeply miss philosophy, but I am glad that I am uh, in psychology. And you get to bring things in from philosophy every once in a while. So. Now, the next thing I, I want to, to ask you is what advice, if you could go back in time, would you give to 11-year-old Lydia when she started school? Uh, secondary school I would probably tell myself to not doubt myself so much I think I've always had sort of a hope for the best prepare for the worst kind of mentality and it has got me quite far to to do that but 
I think it takes a lot of energy to prepare for the worst and you don't always need to do it. Um, you can believe in yourself. And I think if you have a lot of belief in yourself, you also do better at things. It Sometimes worry is valid and it's good to take a second to think, OK, what might go wrong when I do this presentation, when I do this speech, when I hand in a piece of homework, what's the worst thing that can happen? But I think there's a point where you have to recognise, OK, I shouldn't think about this. I shouldn't ruminate this for days on end. I've, I've submitted it. I've done it. It's done. I can be proud of myself now and I can move on and I'll learn from it. Self-belief is a thing that grows, I think. And I think I've, I'm happy that I've got to a stage now where I feel confident in, in what I want to do and that I'm good enough to do what I want to do in the field that I want to do. Because for a long time it was, you know, am I, am I too young? Am I too inexperienced? Do I need more experience? Do I need to go out into the real world and get training and all these things and really when you get to a certain stage you realize that validation within yourself you're like no I am I am ready I can do this I know what I want to do and that feels great so I would have told myself you can do it <laughs> believe in yourself it's it's, it's gonna happen just manifest it <laughs> and it definitely did happen so now I'm going to project you forward and I'm going to say to you okay um where do you see yourself when once you've completed uh, your doctorate I would absolutely love to be working directly with patients supporting um, their understanding of, of health processes and health conditions but also informing policy within hospitals and helping medical practitioners to provide the most effective care for patients. I think we sometimes underestimate how difficult it can be to come into a hospital for a medical procedure or uh, any kind of health condition and the, the psychological stresses that come with being in that kind of environment and just the language that we use when talking to patients and things. And I really like to inform a long-lasting change in how we recognise and support people, specifically in hospital environments with, with health conditions. I think that would be a really rewarding place to be in a, in a few years, and I'd love to get there. I'm sure you will. Now, last question, because um, we've almost reached the end of our of our podcast uh, conversation it's been absolutely brilliant so do you have with all this expertise and all this knowledge that you've got do you have any podcasts that you would recommend that they they listen to based on you know obviously your interests and, and your expertise yeah so I've been mostly listening to podcasts lately I find them great on the move when I'm running about and things but um, so speaking of psychology from the American Psychological Association is a real favourite of mine. They post quite regularly episodes and um, they present recent and really currently relevant psychological research um, across a wide range of topics. So they posted one recently on COVID and the impact that that has on people. Also stuff like PTSD and stress and really relevant sort of issues currently um within the guise of today's research which I, I which i find really interesting and then as well there's all in the mind which is on bbc radio 4 and that's really interesting sort of delves into mental health neuroscience and psychology um, and i'd really recommend that for anyone who's just wants to understand a bit more, more about mental health and mental health processes i'd recommend both of them a lot um brilliant well it's been so lovely to catch up with you and i think what what comes out as well Lydia is your positivity you know it's just infectious and it's it's been wonderful to to have that that conversation today um, so thank you ever so much thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thank you you've been listening to the independent teacher podcast 
If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.